Hi, this is David Shirley from Irish Funds. So this podcast is the first in a series of episodes taken from the live sessions that took place at the Irish Funds online annual Global Funds Conference on the 19th and 20th of May. This episode is entitled Humanizing Transformation, Addressing the Human Aspects of Digital Transformation and features Dr. Mark Esposito of Harvard University and author of The Fourth Industrial Revolution and John Herlihy, former VP of Google and former EMEA head of LinkedIn. The conversation is moderated by Alwyn Alexander, the Global Asset and Wealth Management Leader with PwC. I hope you enjoy this and check back soon for more great content. So let me introduce my two fireside companions uh, virtually. So we have John Herlihy. John is non-executive chair at Kindus and also at Carn. But previous roles that John has held include many technology companies such as LinkedIn, Google, Adobe, Oracle, and PeopleSoft, just to mention a few, spanning sales, operation, and strategic direction across many regions. Mark Esposito is a top global thought leader in all matters relating to the fourth industrial revolution. Mark is the co-founder and chief learning officer at Nexus Frontier Tech, an AI scale-up venture. And Mark has also been a global expert at the World Economic Forum and is an advisor to a number of national governments. So I'm sure we're going to have a very interesting conversation this afternoon. We thought we would uh, put up a poll. It's a very easy one. We're taking it easy on you given it's the afternoon. Hope you're not getting caffeine slump. And if you are, please grab a cup of coffee. But we kept it easy. It's a yes or no. Um, and so the poll question is, do you think that the funds, the financial services industry is infrastructurally challenged on technology innovation and implementation? So we will come back to that and I'll ask our panelists to um, give their perspectives when we get your thoughts. So if you could just do a yes or no and we'll, we'll leave that poll open for, for 15 minutes or so. So as we sat down as a panel to think about what we would cover from a transformation perspective, we, we all agree that the human aspect is so important. If you think about everything that's so important about your people from culture to upskilling and making them comfortable and education and embracing change and any transformation arguably can't succeed if you don't consider the people aspect as important if perhaps arguably not more important than the technology. And so we're going to cover initially the landscape. We look at the impacts on specific organizations, and then we'll do a deep dive on this particular asset management industry. So Mark, if I can start with you, you've written and spoken extensively, as I mentioned, on the fourth industrial revolution, the lead theme at the World Economic Forum just five years ago. At a high level in your view, Mark, has that revolution now happened? And how has the landscape changed? Thanks for this, Olwyn, and uh, good afternoon and greetings from Arizona. Um, I think the conversation around the fourth industrial revolution has always been, since the very inception of the forum, very aspirational. There's no such a thing as a revolution that is actually unfolding. It's really more of a movement of moving technology to start serving purposes larger than just the um, the uh, technology efficiency and the economic efficiency of technology. So I would say there has been significant movement towards the aspiration, definitely 2020 and 2021 so far, um, given equally the challenge we're facing globally have accelerating part of the conversation. Today, we do see 
uh, areas of uh, technology uh, deployed to serve humans more than before. We have understood, you know, the theme of the of our conversation, Alwyn, that humanizing technology is within reach and probably is the most uh, appropriate way for technology to move forward. But I think we're still quite far from having a blanket of a convergence around this. So I, I am always a techno optimist. I think technology can augment and improve people's life, but I don't see the level of progress that I would love to see considering the increase in asymmetries that COVID has equally created around the world. So I, I think it's a space for us to continue to discuss, um, but very likely the next few years will determine whether or not we will achieve this aspiration or whether it will just be an aspiration that will be unfulfilled. Okay, great. Well, we, I'm sure we'll come back to some of those thoughts in a moment. John, can I come to you maybe to share some high level thoughts on the asset management industry as it relates to transformation and the human aspect? Sure, Alwyn. Thank you very much. And uh, greetings uh, from Dublin. Don't quite uh, get to Arizona. I love to be out there, Mark, and uh, uh, enjoying the, the good weather. We're a little bit limited here at the moment. It's all a great question. So in the first instance, I'm actually relatively new to the asset management industry in terms of I've spent the last 25 or so years in technology. Having started off life at KPMG many, many years ago, I have to tell people I'm a recovering accountant, turned left, went in the wrong direction. So join Karn and uh, it, first of all, it's a truly amazing industry. A um, lot of really fantastic people uh, trying to safeguard kind of assets of a huge percentage of the world's population and ensure that they are appropriately taken care of. So I think in a relatively short period of time, I've seen it's a, it's, it's, it's a very, very significant industry populated by very, very competent uh, people who are doing a damn good job. And then I think you kind of come towards kind of change innovation. And I think part of the problems that we have is when we use the word change and innovation, it means different things to different people. If you kind of come to what is a regulated industry and regulation is actually incredibly important and paramount to the success of the asset management and wealth industry, but automatically sometimes people can use the word regulation almost as a defense mechanism to, to avoid change. And so I think in large parts, what you see is an industry that's an effectively run in Excel. And I think when you've been kind of working Excel for 20, 25 years, you kind of see your life playing out in front of you in Excel. Um, and so in large parts, what I've noticed is that there's a lot of fear of kind of terms that technology would use like AI machine learning. And there's an element that the technology industry has to be guilty of kind of creating a lingua franca and saying we're kind of cooler than other people. But I think in reality, what we need to do is to get towards a common definition, because I think once you get to this common definition, you actually take away the fear. So if you talk about the human aspect, you know, what, what slows down transition, what slows down transition is fear. And generally fear comes about is people don't understand what, what technologists are talking about. And so to me, I think what you have is a remarkable industry with a bedrock of history doing brilliant stuff, but probably could leverage technology a little bit more and I think it could transform its people who are brilliant and give them an opportunity because I see huge numbers of people sending a disproportion of their time trying to access data and they're trying to get hold of the data and get to use it. But it seems to me that it's 90% of the time towards this and 10% of the time of what you do with it. And if we could move that in the opposite direction, I think you could actually unleash the imagination and the power of an industry and some remarkable people. Uh, but that I think is an opportunity as we go forward. 
But I think what you're starting to see is some businesses leading from the front and those that are leading from the front will actually drive change. Great, John. Okay, so we're going to have a look at what does it mean at an organization level. And John, I'm going to come to you first. Um, how does an organization create a culture that welcomes and embraces techno technological change? Yeah, um, so I think in the first instance, um, technological change is like any change, right? So how do you embrace change? And so the first thing I think you do is the leadership team of a business have to kind of have a currency of trust. The people trust them. And when they're going out, they're going to say something that it's, it's true. And, uh, and then over time, as you build up this kind of currency of trust, you create a reputation of just your capital in the business. And I think in the first instance, what it does is you kind of start to look at um, what have you learned from failure in the past? And one of the things I think is really important in terms of kind of, kind of creating that kind of culture of trust or culture to, to empower change is an acknowledgement that you actually learn from mistakes and you move forward. And I think what you've got to do is to kind of move away from this penalty culture that if somebody makes a mistake. And I think if we all look at ourselves, many of us, even if we just go back to the things that we may have made a mistake on an exam as a 10-year-old, a 12-year-old, by making the mistake, you're better the next time around. The football player who misses a penalty next time probably does a better job taking it. And for some reason, we've kind of kind of created this mindset that when we go to work, that you can't make a mistake. And I think one of the things that you, we have to think about is that we actually learn from mistakes. And I think you kind of create an environment in which you actually have conversations about why the mistake happened. What did you learn from it and go forward? Because at the end of the day, organizations that have succeeded have probably had more failures than success. But what they did was they reacted remarkably well to the failure to understand what it meant. And so I'm a huge believer that you actually have to start by creating that climate of trust. And that climate of trust comes from the fact that you know, people are going to go into this together collectively to go and actually go and uh, drive a change. But that's going to result in, in, in an acceptance and an acknowledgement that failure is part of the process. And it's the how you manage failure and how you, you deal with it and you don't scapegoat people. It becomes an incredibly important bit. That's not to say you give people license you know, to do idiotic things. But I think in all parts, what you have to do is an environment in which you're kind of celebrating the learnings that come from not doing something very well. And then you get better and better and better. So that's kind of, I think, is kind of like a prerequisite before you can even go further. That's super, I think, really good in terms of trust starting starting at the top down, really, and, and also then embracing failure effectively to learn from it. Mark, can you share your, your thoughts and perspectives on cultural change? Yes, thanks. And, you know, building on what John said, uh, trust, I think, is really at the foundation of where equally technology can help build that trust. So we shouldn't imagine that this is a conundrum where we're putting on one side technology and people on two different sides of the story. We should try to understand that we could side next to each other and using technology to enhance trust. In fact, there is a lot of movement. Um, both in academia and in the technology uh, world, in which we're trying to think of technology as an enabler of trust uh, rather than technology as the opposite. I Building on what John said, I think uh, we have been for too long having this uh, unnecessary trade-off between technology on one side and people. And I guess we equally push this forward uh, via V of the nature of the jobs that were displaced by technology. And so there are many people in the organizations that think that if technology get pushed further and further, jobs will disappear. I think we have to have a much more elevated conversation on the fact that there's no immediate trade-off between technology and jobs. 
the technology does not necessarily replace the job, but in enhancing the task of the job, they're currently are repetitive. We really want to free people of those tasks that don't have as much value. That's what technology is designed for and move them into more, I would say, human centric type of jobs, which is, I think is the challenge in this conversation. It's not really about finding the right place for technology. It's more in understanding how at the cultural level, organizations are able to integrate technology without feeling that the economic efficiency of technology will push people outside. In this way, Alwyn and John, we are equally going to decrease the fear of technology and the resistance to change. People resist what they fear because they simply don't control it. I guess a conversation that is open, transparent, but equally expanding the level of the dialogue, not as a replacement, displacement, but as an enhancement. I, I think this is where we can possibly move the conversation forward. Historically, though, this is such a unique opportunity for us to do that because we kind of lost a bit of the certainty of the past. We're feeling that the future is where we have to look at, but we don't know how. So I think we have a unique opportunity for a bit of a mitigated resistance to change in comparison to before to move organization to the next level. Okay, great. Um, so just on that topic of how you sell the benefits of new technology and address the legitimate fears. Um, anything else, you know, from you, Mark, and then we'll come to John. Well, I, I think, uh, you know, uh, Alwyn, um, we have to uh, so like understand that organizations have grown at a much faster pace through the technology and what the culture could grow alongside. You know, sometimes uh, we talk, especially in the last few months, that COVID has been an accelerant. And this is true. Most uh, research that I tend to look at um, supports the idea that COVID has accelerated digital transformation by roughly six to seven years in most organizations. But the fact that we have been transforming digitally because we had to, doesn't mean that we have culturally transformed as well. You know, it takes us a much longer amount of time for us to culturally adapt. You know, the, the brain is not designed to be uh, a quantum computer, so to say, you know, it's a serial processor. It requires time for us to adjust. And, and equally, our social norms are being heavily disrupted by a period of insularity where we stayed at home, where we were working only through the computer. So we kind of have no pulse on where the organization really was going. So I think if we are able to rebuild solely trusted uh, cultures in organizations, if we're able to understand that the cultural pace is different than the technology pace and working in sync, uh, I think we're going to see what John said before, remarkable success stories of companies that use failure as a trampoline for resilience, rather than using failure as a way of fragmenting who you are. And I guess this is a bit of the stigmatization that we had in many parts of the world, Alwyn. We think of, uh, of failure as uh, something we don't want to face. Um, and that culture builds actually even more failure, so to say. So we like to imagine organization that embrace failure as uh, actually as a milestone towards or a stepping stone towards the level of success that they want to achieve. And that success is much more at the cultural level rather than just specifically on projects or things like that. Okay, great. So um, there's a super question coming in here, John, and I might see if you have any, any thoughts around it. So as we think about embracing failure and making mistakes and encouraging and, you know, creating an environment where people feel safe to do that, how can you reconcile that with a regulator that maybe is moving towards increased personal accountability and, and people feel, you know, this huge burden uh, from a personal perspective? 
Yeah, absolutely. So I, I think in the first instance, I don't think we should ever think that failure gives us a free pass on accountability, right? I think in any business, um, each and every one of us have an obligation. And in particular, within this industry, there's fiduciary obligation. And so within that, I think what we have to do is to go out and actually satisfy those fiduciary obligations. But that doesn't mean that we can't figure out how to do things better and how would we do things. And I think in large parts, it's kind of like, uh, you know, the first time that you put in, um, you know, you start to do DIY and you, you paint a room in your house, you probably made a dog's dinner of it. And by the second or third time you get better. So fundamentally, if you take the approach that if your first one isn't good, you should never do it. And I don't think that's the intent of the regulators. Clearly the regulators want people to go and basically uh, embrace their personal accountability. But sometimes personal accountability means that there's a better way to do it. And I think to have that, that, that conversation. But I think that becomes, it's incredibly important to talk about the narrative, the why you're doing something, why it's important and why ultimately something is going to be better for the end customer. So when you kind of go and you drive change, change actually has to deliver value to all stakeholders. And you need to understand that. And I think once you have that conversation, you talk about the process of change. Um, it's like the process of kind of like riding a bike. The first time you get on the bike, you fall over. Does that mean that none of us should ever get on a bike because we know we're going to fall over? But in order to learn how to do it, you probably have to fall over. And I think we've kind of got a little bit disconnected from the process of learning how to make a change and realizing that not everything is perfect the first time around. And uh, I think it's going to be, you know, ongoing conversations with the regulator, getting them involved, looking to see what they're doing. And, um, you know, they're very smart people. You know, they are actually trying to preserve a jurisdiction and ensure it's actually doing what it should do. Uh, and at the same time, I think they're interested in ensuring that the regulation is moving with the times. So I think it's about having a, an open dialogue and also the regulator believing that you're not messing with them, right? That if you kind of come in and have a conversation, you're serious people talking about a serious issue. And I think that that, that whole area, like building what Mark talked about, like, like Mark had some incredibly insightful points there. And, and like how I try and think about it is you've got to have a narrative because the narrative in life, theories divide and stories unite. When you're driving change within the business, you actually have to unite a large group of people behind the change. They've got to believe that it's, they've got to believe A, it's possible, B, it makes sense, and C, it's worth something to them and all the stakeholders. And the best way to do that is you'll actually do that with an overall uh, overarching narrative and then evidence for each part of the process. The problem is when you kind of do the evidence without any of the narrative, people can't figure out is somebody else getting more than them. And so within this, I think a successful narrative becomes part of the process. And it's like something else. You kind of go and you talk to the regulator. Listen, we're going to make a couple of changes. This is going to basically get worse a little bit for a week or two. On the other side, this gets better. And in six weeks' time, this is where we are. And overall, we think that this is significantly better for the industry. And here are the compensating controls that we're going to put in place. Um, so I think you just got to embrace that, that sort of thing. But it's a very good question. And I think it's one of the areas that we're going to have to work hand in hand with the regulators on this. Okay, great, John. Um, just another thought then on, you know, maybe in traditional organizational structures, people tend to work in their silos. Yeah, and have you any thoughts about how to create that more collaborative environment where people work across uh, different uh, subject matter expert areas? 
Yeah, so like one of the things I'm hoping when people kind of you know come back to the office in whatever format, Mark mentioned how uh, COVID has given us six to seven years kind of uh, accelerated growth in digitalization, right? I, I think we got to be clear that the traditional organizational hierarchy was something that was appropriately defined in the 1940s or 1950s. And here we are 70 to 80 years later. Like almost you think about a government. Governments today struggle to work because they were organized based upon a minister having a portfolio and responsibility for a number of laws. And now they actually uh, cross over. I think what you have in most successful companies is a matrix. And you can go functional, regional, product, whatever way you want to do it. But all successful organizations are about an organism and it's probably molecular biology is probably a better explainer today of organizational dynamics than traditional uh, or organization. I, I think, and, and that's I think one of the things we're gonna think we're gonna need to kind of get our heads around because like traditional, what is digital today? Like, you know, one could argue that the whole business is digital and to have something called out as the digital part of the business, to me, that seems particularly strange. You know, when digital today is the lingua franca, you know, I might have learned, you know, with uh, in a school where I where I wrote stuff down and the teacher used chalk. Today, most kids learn in a digital environment. And so I think we've got to start in the first instance that it's going to be a, a matrix. Every damn matrix is complicated. That's the one thing I've learned. There is no perfect matrix. And I think the most successful people are the people who learn how to operate within the matrix and how to guide the matrix and how to drive it. And so I think in large parts, I think successful navigation of change, successful driving of change needs to be someone who can actually understand influence and drive the matrix. Because if you can't, you're actually driving towards an outdated org structure. And the reality is the reason most or, uh, organizations reject change is they were predicated by the, they were predicated on a different org structure. And so in large parts, you actually have to deliver change based upon the future, not upon the past. And if you try and kind of bring in something based upon the past, well, it's great, but you're not going to get the benefit. Okay, great. And I think you've answered some, some questions that are feeding in there around that, that very point around hierarchical organization structures traditionally being, uh, being challenged. Mark, can I come to you? So we've talked about the challenges of, of you know, the human challenges bringing people along, the cultural changes, um, the fear, overcoming the fears, and, and also breaking down the silos. And yet still, some technology initiatives can, can fail. Any insights into you know, other, other aspects that people need to watch out for or think about or why that is? You know, I think, Owen, one of the things that sometimes we don't consider is that technology problems are, at the end, the people's problem. Um, I can give you an example. So in, in the company that I co-founded, we design artificial intelligence algorithms. And so people think that once they have an AI algorithm, it will simply work. But what they don't consider is that when the algorithm defines, and this is typical of every machine learning uh, problems, a dynamic answer, if the organization is not designed a structure to take into account dynamic decisions, that suddenly that, that, that um, resource like the, the machine learning is idle, doesn't really serve the purpose. So one of the things that we noticed is that we needed to have something called the AI project 
manager, which was a person that was helping both the technology department, then the production environment, all the way down to the commercial side to work together. So I think we have to uh, go back into the idea of ecosystem, but not just in terms of the larger spectrum, but more of the internal one. What's the internal ecosystem of collaboration? Um, I remember when IT was a separated unit in a different part of the building, and in some cases, even outsourced to a different country. Today, uh, the role that I, IT has is so critical because I would say we all agree that every company today in some form is a technology company. So it's the same like back in the days, every company was a financial company because the role of finance was important and every company needed to have operation and accounting. So we were not separating this activity from the core of the organization. We had in the past out of the cost saving mindset shifted IT elsewhere, but we have to understand that integrating IT today, first of all, allows decision makers to understand that IT is not just a neutral driver, but it has a collective design that needs to be taken into account. And goes back to what John said before, answering to the beautiful question, that is what was accountability. On the other hand, I think we wanna have um, non-technologies working with technology um, people to understand that technology doesn't serve the purpose of itself. And I have a quick example again, Alvin, on that. I remember when a group of engineers were obsessed with reaching a 99% of accuracy on an algorithm. But the business people said, I don't need 99. I need 85. It's good enough for what I have to do. So the, the relationship on the KPI, sometimes they're very different. But if mm -hmm. we are creating convergence across the organization, because we get them to understand what's the ultimate purpose of what we're doing, changes the mindset and equally break down a little bit the silos. So that's an experience I wanted to share directly from uh, my direct um, exposure with our own company and how much we learn from understanding the idea of production environment and, and people. Super, that's great, Mark. So I want to get down into the industry now, specifics to the industry. And John, if I come to you first, but uh, Mark, I'd love your thoughts as well as to why we haven't seen the funds or the asset management industry truly disrupted to the same extent as other industries over the last 25 years. John, can I ask you to kick off? Yeah, sure. Well, number one, it's, it's the size of the, the industry is huge and, it, and, it, and it's relative importance. So everyone kind of treads with care, right? I think the other thing that you start to look at is if, if we just take a look at the, the challenges that we have within the industry, it, it's kind of like data, data everywhere, but you can't get at it. Like we've got prisoners of data. And in many ways, like you, it, it's actually very understandable. Many of the systems that were kind of put together in the, you know, um, the IT systems put together in the 70s and 80s were put together at a time when storage costs were actually very significant in the cost of, in the, of a project. Effectively, if you look at Moore's Law today and what it's done for us over the past 10 to 15 years, storage is effectively free. There's a point in time when you kind of went to a company day out and instead of golf balls, they gave you a two gigabit uh, you know, storage device. Like, so storage is effectively free, right? Today, you can pay two bucks a month for practically un unlimited storage uh, on, on Google or AWS. And so in large part, that then resulted in a process by which people overwrote records. And, you know, you got various systems. It's very hard to get out all of the pieces of information you need because they're in different systems. And so that in itself kind of caused some of the issues. And so in large parts, I think what you're going to have to do is to start to think about how you extract that. Because, um, you know, banking has kind of gone with open banking and the API framework. 
you can start to see things starting to be discussed at some point in time in terms of, of asset management. You can see people using the same information again and again for AML, KYC, and ODD. And then you're kind of wondering, wow, wouldn't it be really great if that was in one, in one location and you could just go bounce against that? And so I think you're going to start to see that level of kind of thinking and questioning. And, you know, and, and to pick up Mark's point, like Mark really talked about uh, companies and industries being a technology company. But I think in order to be a technology company, you need to give technology a voice at the table. And I think traditionally IT has been a kind of a servant to the business. And someone say, go X, you know, I need you to extract, you know, report from column 17,345 and whatever. And, and I think the reality is you start to build from a technology point of view, you'll actually unleash the creativity of the technology organization. And one of the things I learned in kind of 11 years at Google was you never actually tell an engineer what to do, you describe the problem. And the likelihood is they will take it up and extract it to a higher level and build you a solution that is 10 times better than what you asked for. And I think that's the danger. The danger in the industry is when the person asking the question doesn't have a vision of what's possible from technology. And in effect, you actually create a very narrow specification that you're asking someone to actually go and work on. And I think part of actually having a technology platform and leveraging it is to put technology people with a voice and starting to teach other people and it could well be a reverse mentoring. One of the things I've done in a lot of businesses, I've ensured that like, you know, new 21, 22 year olds coming in are actually um, mentoring the 40, 50 and 60 year olds. Uh, because the likelihood is a 22 or 23 year old coming in knows more, has forgotten more about technology in the last six months than the 50 year old has learned in their career. And so one of the fastest ways is to almost um, spread by wildfire the ability and understanding of what technology might be able to do for you. That then can result in actually more broader questions. And so I think if we can kind of create that sort of environment within the business, I think we've got remarkable capability, remarkably good people. And sometimes they just mm -hmm. think that they're using technology to solve what they think is a defined problem. But if we could go up a step further, we might actually think we could come up with much bigger solutions to deliver ultimately much greater value for our end customer protecting investors around the world, delivering better investor outcomes. And as a consequence, the industry able to stand over everything that it says and does. Okay, super. Mark, can I come to you, your, your observations on why this industry hasn't been disrupted to the same extent as many others to date? Yeah, thanks, thanks for this. Well, first of all, I think it was, it was um, cushioned, right? It was a, an industry that didn't have the same exposure to other industries. I mean, imagine an airline industry and the number of different crashes and accidents that they have to figure out to improve safety for passengers. But in many cases, the financial industry was protected either by government policy or by the fact that when the size of the financial player was too large, a government were deciding to turn private debt into public by bailing them out, right? So as much as I understand the economic implication of a large entity uh, that might be failing um, bankruptcy and what government does, this has created less resilience and more fragility because then the industry was less exposed from learning from their own failure. The other thing is that, you know, we haven't really innovated the idea of money per se in the same way as we have been innovating the idea of value around the world. Now I think we start to see 
an alternative. It's only uh, 10 years ago that with the boom of the crypto, we started to have one of the largest, uh, I would say, social experiment in which can we trust an immaterial with no intrinsic value entity, such a cryptocurrency that is not backed up by any central government. And the experiment, to some extent, regardless of the amount of volatility that needs to be actually watched and considered, was able to prove that we could bypass central structure of control around uh, you know capital flows. So I think for a number of different reasons, the industry did not suffer of the same level of impact. Equally, the disruption happened primarily internally through the fact that we were shifting to the online rather than on the physical, but it wasn't impacted by the external as much as imagine if you were a retailer or if you were a technology company, or if you were any sort of business that saw the forces of disruption coming from outside. Now, I think it started to change a combination, I guess, the last few months, plus movements of, of I would say, diversifying the concept of, of finance. On top of this, which is my last point, Alwyn, finally, the financial player are playing into the transformation. For long, they were resisting this. I do remember when the whole conversation on sustainability was always seen with some reluctancy from the financial player because they couldn't make the business case for it. Today, you will see this with the example of the ESG, how much investors are looking for non-financial performance. And, and this is so interesting that we're introducing the language in a way that likely not only will change the nature of investment, but will equally change the nature of what the financial player are looking at. So um, probably now uh, the transformation is starting at a faster pace, but for a long period of time, I think the industry was not exposed. Okay, very interesting. John, um, in our previous discussions, you had some really interesting observations around the fin versus the tech. Can I ask you to just share those? Yeah, absolutely. Background to that is, um, uh, I, I joined the board of Carn uh, about a year ago with uh, Mike O'Brien, who'd spent a long time at Barclays and uh, BGI and at JP Morgan. So we called uh, Mike Finn and me Tech. And as we both turned up, one of the things we uh, we discovered as we went through this were that you know we would use the same word, but it meant something fundamentally different in technology than it meant in finance. And so suddenly, what I was suddenly realizing was we could have a lexicon, we could pick 40 words, and we all had different kind of areas of emphasis for it. I think the other thing, picking up on Mark's point about kind of a cryptocurrency and Bitcoin and, and so many other issues, I think the businesses that are actually driving huge change around the technology platform. Why? Because I think a large part of the younger generation trusts technology more than they trust traditional kind of governments, go governance type, type institutes, and they can actually kind of see, see, see what's happening. But on the fintech, like how I thought about it is like, um, you know, effectively technology is doing some element of kind of disruption with, within financial services. But you also see then what Goldman Sachs are doing in terms of what probably being one of the largest acquirers of engineers, software engineers in the world. And today, you know, Google and Facebook would actually see uh, Goldman Sachs as probably their biggest, one of their biggest co competitors uh, for, you know, data scientists, et cetera. So you're suddenly starting to see some of the businesses in the traditional finance understanding the leverage that they get from technology, and they're driving that. And then what they're doing is they're superpowering their people who actually understand what customers want. And then they're increasing the quality of customer engagement. And so it's kind of the traditional, you know, it's, it, it's almost like an, an old fashioned model. Use technology to deliver incredible insights and then use experienced people to tell the story to customers as to why it, why it matters. 
And so immediately you kind of start to see this kind of like some companies get it, some don't. And within fin and tech, the ones that get it are going to do incredibly well. And it, it's not, you know, it doesn't mean you, you don't have to be old to not get it. There's new companies that don't get it. But in large part, I think you're going to see the merger of those two and where they come together incredibly well and incredibly quickly. My sense is there's going to be real value created. But yeah, no, it's fun. It's like Mike and I talk about ourselves as like the odd couple of fin and tech. And uh, so that's been really, really interesting from our point of view. Very good. Well, okay, so I'm going to come back to the poll and the poll results. Um, so just as a reminder, we asked our audience, do you think the funds uh, financial services industry is infrastructurally challenged on technology innovation and implementation? And no big surprise, 88% yes and 12% no. So, Mark, I might come to you first for a reaction to that. Well, it doesn't surprise me. I think we've been feeling the same also in the conversation that we had today with you and with John, that uh, there is work for us to be done. Uh, we have to start, I think, instilling a culture of experimentation uh, that is not necessarily stigmatizing failure. Um, I think it's, it's, it's an opportunity for uh, many organizations to start thinking in something that John mentioned before, and it was inspired by one question. The organizational structure of companies today does not reflect the way the market is. The market is much more network driven than pyramids or, or silos. You know, back in the days when we were structuring organization top down, we were um, replicating the model of the factory where production needed to be actually streamlined. Today, the market is much smarter than any form of structure. So I think the more we're going to be able to redesign the role organization and equally a question that was implying power structure, which definitely will be disrupted as well, around how markets are, the level of collaboration that I think we've been discussing, the more we're going to find organization that will entropically be part of the environment in which we are. Uh, and I think this is the major call for action that I would love this polling to suggest is that we are ready for the level of redesign. Uh, towards something that is much more network driven. And I think we should little by little dismantle the deal structure because there is nothing that the company can do today to control the uncertainty that the market will generate tomorrow. So rather, rather swim with it rather than trying to build a dig around it. Great. And I'm being told we've less than a minute left, John. So can I come to you for your one call to action then for, for people? Yeah, I would practically repeat everything that Mark said. I think he's absolutely right on the money. The reality today is uh, networks are more important than traditional. Uh, Maslow's hierarchy of needs is somewhat important, but the pyramid is no longer important in terms of the power structure. And to me, I think, you know, embrace technological change because what you have in, the financial, in this business is you have fantastic people. So fantastic people can spend 90% of their time doing really intrinsic value creation work as opposed to data extraction and nonsensical stuff. My sense is your organization will create a multitude of the value that's currently creating and be in a better position to swim and to drive the industry forward. So that'd be my call to action. And you know, em embrace the change throughout the org structure as you think about it and ultimately embrace what's possible. Fantastic. Well, can I just thank both Mark and John's fantastic insights there today, and hopefully everybody enjoyed the session. Um, and we'll hand it back to Jennifer.